0: Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 12, it says, now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared and there make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. In the evening, he came with the twelve. Now, as they sat and ate, Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one by one. Is it I? And another said, is it I? He answered and said to them. It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The son of man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man. If he had never been born. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus is marked for death. By the religious leaders, the religious leaders want to wait until after the Passover to execute God's lamb. But according to his sovereign timetable, he has other plans. The chapter began with plots to betray and then killed Jesus in verses 1 and 2 and verse 10 and 11. And then there was the preparation of pouring expensive perfume on his body in verses 3 through 9. And then, of course, now the Passover meal in verses 12. And we're going to see next week through verse 26. Our text begins with a set of instructions in verses 12 through 16. Followed by an indictment in verses 17 through 20. Jesus announces that one of the disciples will betray him. Patiently. Jesus will give Judas an opportunity. To turn from his sin. To turn to the Savior. Just like God patiently. Works with us, preparing our hearts, exposing our sin, providing a savior. Jesus will give Judas every opportunity to repent and he gives us every opportunity to repent. Judas will receive a final warning. Our problem is we rarely know when that final warning will come. So the text begins with a simple request. Look at verse 12. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? The exact timetable or chronology has been fiercely debated by Bible teachers and Bible scholars. It's probable that we've come to Thursday night of the Passover week. Remember, in the Jewish way of reckoning, a day began when the sun sets. So a day in the Jewish calendar goes from sunset to sunset. It can be very confusing when you grow up in a world in a chronology where your day begins when the sun rises. And the day ends when the sun sets. Remember, though, what's important about this date is not the chronology, although we want to know. The important thing about the text is that Jesus is in charge. Jesus is in control. It is Jesus who is determining the time and the place of his death. The Passover lamb was selected on the 10th day of the month of Nisan in the Jewish calendar. Nisan runs from March to April. Now, again, part of the the challenge is they have a lunar calendar. We have a solar calendar on the 10th day of the month. The priest would examine the Passover lamb for defects, for spots, for blemishes and then the lamb would be slain on the 14th day of the month. We know that from Exodus chapter 12, verses 3 through 6. The feast of unleavened bread did not begin until the 15th day of the month. So the, the day ends Thursday, almost around 6, excuse me, Wednesday. Wednesday. Almost around six begins Thursday around six. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread will begin. We have every reason to believe that again. Now on that first day, Jesus and his disciples there in Bethany at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. But the lamb must be slain at the temple and the meal must be eaten in Jerusalem city limits now for the again the jewish people the day begins at dawn or excuse me not at dawn but at sunset and for the disciples they don't seem to comprehend that this is the climax of the first passover and every subsequent passover jews in every generation since the exodus from egypt In the wilderness, in the promised land, they have been following, observing the Passover. The crowds in Jerusalem would have been enormous. Josephus estimates that it could have been as much as one to two million people flooding into the city. And the fact that the disciples have to ask the question where do you want us to go and prepare indicates that Jesus had not told them the plans for the Passover had to remain a secret. You remember why they have to remain a secret. The religious leaders want to kill him. Judas is plotting to put him to death. But unbeknownst to the disciples, Jesus has a plan. He has always had a plan. The same Jesus who prepared the universe and the planet and the people and the promises of God prepared you. He prepared your life and your existence. The life that you have right at this very moment. The parents that you have. The spouse, if you have a spouse, the children, all of the plans and purposes of God have been unfolding in your life. God has prepared your life, but he also prepared a savior just for you. Now, remember, this is the most important celebration of the year, and because it was the most important celebration of the year, there would have been a profound shortage of housing. So again, the disciples are wondering, they are questioning. Tell us about your plans, just like you. You probably wondered and questioned the plan of God for your life. Lord, who am I going to marry? What kind of a job am I going to have? Where am I going to go to school? How am I going to live my life? How is my life going to turn out? <laughs> In Proverbs 25, 2, it says it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. And it's the glory of kings to search out a matter. Remember, Jesus knows that Judas has plotted with the religious leaders to hand him over. And so Jesus needs to keep the plans and the movements secret. Does that shock you? Does it surprise you? That Jesus has secrets. Now remember, some of the secrets of the past have become common knowledge in the present. And some of the secrets in the present will become common knowledge in the not too distant future. One of the interesting things in our passage is that Jesus has a secret. And Jesus keeps a secret. And one of the secrets is the identity of the person who will betray him. Why does he do that? Why doesn't he simply expose him and thwart the plan? I'm going to suggest to you that in part, one of the reasons is to give Judas an opportunity to repent. So why does Jesus allow you to keep your secret? How is it that Jesus allows you to go day after day and week after week holding the secret of your heart? Because Jesus also wants to give you an opportunity. Because what may not be known by your husband or your wife, by your family or your friends, is known by Jesus. And so, Jesus certainly worshipped. He certainly kept the feast of the Jews. And in verse 13, look at the strange revelation that's made in verse 13. It says, and he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Now, in Luke chapter 22, verse eight, we discover the identity of those two disciples. He sent out two disciples. We know from Luke's gospel They are Peter and they are John. Jesus tells them to go into the city and there they're going to meet a man carrying a pitcher of water. The word translated pitcher is kera mion. It means an earthenware jar or a jug. And this would have been easy to spot since in that culture and society, it would have been very, very unusual to see a man. Carrying a pitcher of water when men would tote water around, they would do so with a satchel with a large animal skin. A man care would carry a bag of water or an animal container or an animal skin of water. But typically it would have been very unusual for a man to carry water. And remember, the instructions are sufficiently specific to get the disciples where they want to go. It would be like if I said to you. Go to Park Meadows Mall. There you will meet a man. Wearing a dress, carrying a purse. And well, maybe that's not such a good example, because I guess it's not all that uncommon anymore. I guess I would need to have a different illustration. But in the time of Jesus, this worked very, very well. It's going to preserve the identity of the owner and the location of the spot is going to remain secret. Because Judas must not know the exact spot. He must not know the actual meeting spot until it's time to meet. And in verse 14, it says, wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover? With my disciples. Now, the master of the house translates a word, oike despate. Oike despate is a non classical Greek word which means the owner, the proprietor, the person who's in charge. And so, wherever he goes in, say to the person who's in charge, the owner, didaskalos that's the teacher this is one of jesus's many titles he is the master he is the rabbi he is the lord but here he is the teacher and of course indicating to the man that there's no further identification needed and when he says where is the guest room it translates a very familiar greek phrase Kata, lima, Mao. As a matter of fact, that's the exact same word you would use in modern Greek when asking for a room. Where is your room or where is the guest room? And so in verse 15, it says, then he will show you a very large upper room, furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. When it says a large room, I want you to picture in your mind what houses would have been like in the first century, particularly in the temple precinct. In the city of Jerusalem. Imagine a house that looks like a box. Maybe even a shoe box. Imagine that it's very, very large. Then on the top of that box place another box. So there is a lower room, which is the street level. Then there's an upper room, which looks like a box. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that this room is large enough To accommodate Jesus and all of his disciples. And he says furnished and prepared. All the necessary furniture is present. But again, I know that when I say the word furniture, you guys think American Furniture Warehouse. You see couches, you see tables, you see chairs. But furniture in the first century wouldn't have looked like that at all. People would have reclined on the floor. They would have had very large pillows. They would sometimes have mats that would be elevated from the ground between three and six inches. And so think of a table that has the tiniest legs possible in order to put mats on. Think of couches. But when it says couches, think of pillows. Think of pillows that are tubular shaped. That would have served as a a form of comfort and and a form of reclining, if you will. And so all the furniture is necessary. And, And in this place, Peter and John would have prepared the Passover meal. And so in verse 16, it says, so his disciples went out. They came into the city and found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. Look at what the text says. All things were just as the master said. Why is that important to you right at this very moment? Because they always are. They always are. You see, when you read the Bible and Jesus speaks to you and he communicates with you about this world and about your life and about your circumstances, when Jesus makes promises, you can trust those promises. When Jesus says that the world is going to begin in such a way and end in such a way, it will. When Jesus promises that there's hope and life and forgiveness, there is When Jesus says that there is a cycle of life that we go through, it's true. When Jesus says, I'm going to go away, but if I go away, I'm going to prepare a place for you. That also is true. Now, in the text, it says, and they prepared the Passover. That simple phrase, they prepared the Passover doesn't indicate to us everything that went into that simple sentence. Last uh, month, well, it's still this month, I guess. Yeah, December. This month, my wife had a woman's tea with 350 ladies. And my son prepared food for 350 ladies. When you're preparing food for 350 people, you have to purchase the food. You have to prepare the food. You have to cook the food. The person who cooks for a living, when he sees the restaurant full, that person understands all of the planning, all of the preparation that goes into that simple sentence. The preparation would have included the ceremonial search for leaven. By the way, all evidence of leaven had to be removed. There's a reason why it's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The first Passover was eaten with unleavened bread. In ancient times, the master of the house would have taken a lighted candle or what was called a lamp. It was made of clay. It would have been filled with oil. It would have had a a wicker. The master of the house would have taken the lighted candle, searched ceremonially for the leaven. Before the search, he would have prayed this prayer. Blessed art thou. Jehovah, our God and king of the universe, who has sanctified us by your commandments and commanded us to remove the leaven. And then at the end of the search, the owner or the master would have prayed all the leaven that is in my possession, that which I have seen and that which I have not seen, be it null, be it accounted as the dust of the earth. And so in this room, a preparation would have been made. It becomes a type and a picture of the reality of the removal of sin from the place where you dwell. It also meant that the Passover lamb, presumably cared for by the owner of that house. Had to be sacrificially roasted in the eyes of the Jew, all blood was sacred to God because the life was in the blood and the sacrifice, remember, had to take place. In the temple. I want you to envision. That you're now taking the lamb. And you're walking to the temple. And you come to the courtyard. And there is the courtyard of the Gentiles. You're going to see the courtyard. Of the women. And of the priest. Now think about it for just a moment. Between the sacrifice would have taken place between the worshipers and the altar. You would have come across a long line of priests. There is a line of priests to the left coming towards you. There is a line of priests to the right coming towards you. Each of the priests would have had a golden or a silver bowl. You would come to the priest and then the priest would have taken a knife and he would have slit the lamb's throat. After slitting the lamb's throat, he would fill the bowl with blood. He would pass it to the priest who would pass it to the priest who would pass it to the priest nearest to the altar. And on the day of the Passover, at the earliest moment, the, the, the altar would have been snow white. And the first bowl of blood is poured on the altar, and then the second bowl is poured, and then the tenth bowl, and the one hundredth bowl, and then a thousand bowls of blood, and then ten thousand bowls of blood, and then a hundred. 1,000 bowls of blood 150,000 bowls of blood and the altar is soaked and the floors are soaked and you see and you smell blood everywhere 200,000 bowls of blood a quarter of a million bowls of blood they would have taken the lamb and removed the entrails and the fat and then returned the lamb to its owner. The carcass was flayed, the fat extracted, because it was part of the necessary sacrifice. William Barclay says that Josephus estimates that a quarter of a million lambs are slain at the scene. The lamb was then carried home and roasted. It must not be boiled. Nothing can touch the lamb, not even the sides of a pot. It must be roasted over an open fire on a spit that's made of pomegranate wood. The spit would have went right through the lamb's mouth. It would have extended to the vent. The entire lamb would have been roasted, all of its head, all of its legs, All of its tail, they would have had to secure the other elements for the meal, the wine, the bitter herbs, the unleavened bread, the dip or the sauce that consisted of dried fruits and spices and wines. In order to prepare all of this, so many ritual customs had to be followed. And the lamb's blood. Was spilled. To spare the home. It was intended to prevent the death angel from coming by and bringing judgment. This is the reason why it was called pass over, because judgment had passed over that home. The consequences of judgment had passed over that home and unleavened bread to remind them of the meal eaten in haste from their escape from slavery. A bowl of salt water was there. It would have reminded them of the tears that were shed in Egypt and then the waters of the Red Sea, which have, which would have been parted. It would have reminded them again of the of the slavery, the collection of bitter herbs, horseradish, chicory, endive, dates, pomegranates, nuts. It would have been shaped into the form of of a brick and there within the shape of all of those fruits would have been cinnamon sticks. It would have reminded them of the, the, the straw that would have been mixed in order to build the bricks in order to to build Pharaoh's empire. There were four cups of wine, the cups contained a little more than a half a pint of wine, there would have been three parts of wine and then two parts of water. And then the four cups were drunk to remind them of the four promises that were given in Exodus, chapter six, verses six and seven. I will bring you out of the burden of the Egyptians, that's promise number one. I will rid you of your bondage. That's promise number two. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. That's promise number three. I will take you to me for a people and I will be your God. That's promise number four. And such were the preparations. Every detail designed to declare The life, the ministry, the deliverance of Jesus, because the picture of slavery in Egypt pictures a greater slavery. It's the slavery to sin. And Jesus comes to forgive sin and to deliver the sinner. Some scholars speculate that this home may have been the childhood home of John Mark. That's my belief. As a matter of fact, a careful reading of the New Testament and you discover something that the home of John Mark seems to have been a hub in the post-resurrection drama of the New Testament. As you read forward in the Gospels, you'll find Jesus dying and then coming back to life. And then a group of 120 followers of Jesus gather together in an upper room. A large upper room. A place where it seemed safe. And I'm going to suggest to you that the author of this book, as a little boy, probably remembered each and every Passover that led up to this one. Peter, John would have carefully prepared the observance. And we can safely say that Jesus proceeds through the ritual step by step until he comes to one point in the ritual and he's going to impart new meaning. The end of the Passover was celebrated by a feast, which included for those present the eating of the roasted lamb. And it's probable that it's at this point that Jesus institutes what you and I call the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Memorial Jesus said, behold, I now institute a new and everlasting covenant in Luke chapter 22, verse 20. But we get a sneak peek, which we will look at next week in verse 24, when Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. But look at the place of rendezvous. Go back to the text. Look at verse 17. In the evening. He came. With the twelve. Wednesday is over. Thursday begins. It's evening. Jesus comes with the disciples to the place. Prepared in advance. Remember it's customary to eat the meal between 6 o'clock at night and 12 midnight. For those familiar with the New Testament, a number of things take place between verse 16, well, actually, between verse 17 and verse 18. Between verse 17 and 18, if you're familiar with John's gospel in chapter 13, verses 1 through 20, between verse 17 and 18, this is the place where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. This is the place where the lessons of humility are learned. After that lesson, Jesus is profoundly disturbed. He announces that one in the midst is a traitor. The announcement shocks everyone. Except for the traitor. Remember, Jesus washes everyone's feet. And I mean everyone, including Judas. And then in verse 18, the sad revelation. Look what it says. Now, as they sat and ate, Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. The Passover has been celebrated Well over a thousand years by this time in the very first Passover, the original Passover was celebrated standing up, according to Exodus chapter 12, verse 11. That was a sign of haste. In other words, the very first Passover that was ever celebrated was celebrated standing up. But in Jesus's day, everyone is sitting down. Because. The day of haste has passed in the day of Jesus. They're no longer slaves escaping slavery. These are free men sitting in a free place under a free circumstance. Free men sit in their own home and they sit in their own country. And so as they're reclining again, that's the culture guests, according to Sweet, they would lay on their left side with their feet resting on the ground. The couches, don't think couches like you sit on, think of an elevated pillow. They seem to have been grouped in sets of two or three. They would have been placed together and there would have been a central position, which at that central position, it was a great place of dignity. And I'm going to suggest to you, based on Matthew's gospel, that Judas is sitting in the place of honor next to Jesus. John, the apostle, is sitting on the left. He can recline his head on Jesus' chest. Judas is on the right. Mark doesn't give the details contained in either Matthew's or John's gospel. Mark declares the announcement, someone's going to betray me. In the process of eating, the explanation, one of you who eats with me, He's quoting Psalm 49, excuse me, Psalm 41, 9. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. This is the end of the Passover. This is the beginning of the feast. This is where, again, Jesus takes the bread. We're going to read about it next week in verses 22 and 23. But, pause, verse 19. They begin to be sorrowful. They say to one another, is it I? Is it I? Another said, Is it I? Now this is one of the most interesting details of this story. It's the inability of the disciples to recognize the betrayer. And how is it that all of them begin to confess? Is it I? Because that's not normal. You see, they've grown up with Jesus now. They've walked with Jesus. They've talked with Jesus. Typically, in a situation like this, when Jesus announces, one of you is going to betray me, they look at each other with suspicion and they go, is it you? Is it you? But something has happened. Something is happening inside of their hearts. Did they recognize their sinful circumstances? Have they begun to examine their own hearts and wicked propensities? Do the disciples begin to understand the weakness of their flesh and how easy it is to fail? And have have you? Have you grown in your friendship and relationship with Jesus? Have you grown? Do you recognize your own heart, your own weakness, your own Failures, your own sensitivities and sensibilities. Earlier in the ministry of the Lord Jesus, they debated who's the greatest. Now they're debating who's the worst. And look what the text says. And to say to him, one by one, Peter. Is it me, James? Is it me? Even the beloved Apostle John. Is it me? In their midst was one who should have been convicted. But he wasn't. Grieved. But he wasn't. Sorrowing. But he wasn't. Convicted. But he wasn't. You see, our job is to examine our own weakness and our own wickedness and our own failures. And by the way, I guarantee you, if your weakness and your wickedness and your failure is anything like mine, you have plenty to keep you busy. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 25, verse 26, we read. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him in Matthew's gospel. You have said it now, it would appear that only Judas heard that the other disciples would never, they would never, they would never have let him leave the room if they had known. Italian people and Jews have that in common. They don't do well with betrayal. We can sometimes keep secrets from one another. But we'll never keep secrets from Jesus. There's an old hymn that was written by John G. Whittier many years ago, "O Lord and Master of us all." And there's one particular stanza where it says, "Our thoughts lie open to thy sight and naked to thy glance, our secret sins are in thy light, of thy pure countenance." Jesus knows. He knows what no one else knows. He sees what no one else sees. And then the sorrowful remonstration, that means the announcement in verse 20, he answers and says to him, it is one of the 12 who dips with me in the dish. Now, remember, in the Middle East to share food with someone is a picture of intimacy and camaraderie. It would be like if we all went to Trace Margaritas. And by the way, they call it Trace Margaritas because after Trace Margaritas, it doesn't matter what the food tastes like. If you go and you have a great big pot of salsa picante and you have chips, you sit there and you dip the chip in the bowl Everyone eats from the common bowl, but it's a picture of intimacy and camaraderie. In Psalm 41, 9, when David wrote about his trusted friend and counselor, Ahithophel, he's giving a picture of friendship and fellowship around the table. Strangers can't betray you. Only friends. Friends. In the culture of the Jews, it's the height of treachery. It's the height of backstabbing, double-dealing wickedness to eat someone's food and then betray them. Betrayal is mutiny. Betrayal is a violation of trust. Betrayal is always an inside job. Betrayal is different and worse than rejection. Rejection is like someone taking a knife and cutting you. Betrayal is like someone taking salt and pouring it into the wound of the knife that just cut you. Betrayal is different from loneliness. Loneliness leaves you cold. It turns you out from a place where you were once warm. Betrayal slams the door in your face. When you repeatedly try to return. And who are betrayals victims? Well, it's the wife who's been dumped by her husband for a woman half her age. It's the pastor who steals the money and runs away with the secretary. It's the mother who sells her soul for a life of self-indulgence at the expense of her children. It's the boyfriend who beats up the children and drinks away the rent money. It's the girl who's tested out positive for HIV, even though she only did it one time. Betrayal only takes place in an environment where love is possible. And Jesus is generous. And Judas is treacherous. Jesus will love Judas and Jesus will respect Judas and Jesus will honor him and Jesus will serve him. And if you don't believe me, read John's gospel of him washing his feet and think about what Jesus does. Jesus knows the truth about him and refuses to expose him. The same as you. The same as me. Jesus loves you and respects you and honors you and serves you. And he does. He refuses to expose you to the people. Who may think they want to know the truth about you, but they don't. And think about what Jesus does that becomes the most important thing of all. Jesus treats Judas as if he were faithful when he's not. Can you imagine? Can you imagine such a thing? Can you imagine such a thing? Now think about what's going on. What is Judas thinking? Does Jesus know? Or is he just playing some clever trick to see if he can smoke out the traitor? What do you think? Do you think that this is some sort of messianic parlor trip in order for judas to sort of expose himself i don't think so jesus knows jesus knows about the monstrous deception he goes on record he gives notice that he knows and by the way in gambling gamblers look for what they call a tell do you know what a tell is a tell is a subtle but detectable change in a player's movement or expression or demeanor that might reveal what's in his or her hand. Think carefully. Judas is told, I know who you are and I know what you've done. I know about your sin. Judas's response, I think you're bluffing. I think I can get away with it. I know who you are and I know what you've done. I think I can get away with it. I know who you are and I know what you've done. I need you to repent. No, I'm not going to repent. Judas is going to continue in the deception. Judas is going to nurse the charade. Judas will reject the previous chance and this chance and one More chance. But soon he's going to be out of chances. By the way, sometimes repentance is date stamped. Just like eggnog at Christmas. Have you ever gone to the refrigerator and you see that stamp on the eggnog? It says, do not drink after December 25th. And you open the carton, you give it a little smell, and you realize these people know what they're talking about. That is not Good. Look at verse twenty one. The son of man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. I want you to understand what the text is saying. Jesus is going to go forward with his death. God had prepared a universe. God had prepared a people. People. God had prepared... And given prophecies and promises. God prepared a child. God prepared a minister. God prepared a sacrifice. God prepared a mechanism where your sin could be forgiven and you could be restored to God and experience hope and life. Jesus is going to go forward, just as it is written of him in Genesis, and Exodus, and Leviticus, in Numbers, and Deuteronomy, in each and every prophecy that has ever been given, Jesus is. Is going to accomplish God's perfect will. But the future of the one who betrays him. Jesus' testimony. It would have been good for that man. If he had never been born. Now contrast that with what was said earlier. When Mary decided to break the, 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 the canister. And pour oil all over his body. For the precious burial that was about to take place. And he said, she has done a good thing. Leave her alone. And this is the answer that we have to give to those who seek to defend Judas. Who want to exonerate him. And argue that he was doing Jesus a favor. Fulfilling prophecy. Revealing Christ's power. Setting up a Jewish kingdom. We have to remind people. That Judas was a free moral agent and that the free moral agent is responsible for his or her actions. The moral agent is responsible for the consequences that go in place once the choice is made and make no mistake about it. You are responsible for the choice that you make. You're responsible to believe, to embrace, to repent. To admit your sin and your guilt and to walk away from it. Judas is not a theological robot fated to fulfill prophecy or martyrdom. Judas is a person. A person who is responsible for the choices and the actions that he takes. And so are you. And so am I. Judas makes choices. And in making those choices he... Fulfills the prophecy of God. Judas didn't wake up one morning and decide to become the villain. He didn't fall at once. And he didn't fall unwarned. Jesus said, didn't I choose you twelve and one of you is a devil? I want you to place yourself just for a moment in that upper room and see his eyes as he says, is it I? Is it me? Do you suppose his conscience was. Whispering. Or screaming. Or had the voice. Stopped talking altogether. Judas planned the treachery. He volunteered to deliver Jesus. He accepted 30 pieces of silver. In spite of Jesus's warnings. And Mark doesn't record it, but John's gospel does. We learn that Judas exits the upper room at this point. Convinced and committed to go through with his plan. This is love's last appeal. And Judas' final warning. By the way, whatever it means to love Jesus Christ, it means that loving him becomes the proof and the test of your really real circumstances of your heart. That's what the betrayal of Jesus by Judas should do. It should cause you to search your heart. Are you a lover of Jesus or are you an uncommitted pretender? Because like Judas, you can choose death. Or you can choose despair. You can choose repentance or forgiveness. And Judas' betrayal will send Jesus to a Roman cross. But that cross will give us yet another option. Life. Death. Forgiveness. Or unforgiveness. I want to read... A little bit of verse to you before we close. It's about the promises of God. God hath not promised skies always blue, flowers strown pathways all our lives through. God has not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. God has not promised we shall not know toil and temptation, trouble and woe. He has not told us we shall not bear many a burden, many a care. But God has promised strength for the day, rest for the laborer, light for the way, grace for the trial, help from above, Unfailing sympathy, undying love. You see, the truth is, Jesus loved him. And Jesus treated him not as if he were unfaithful, but as if he were faithful. You see, the truth is, if you never, ever loved someone, You never, ever have to worry about them betraying you. People can only be betrayed by people they care about. And see, this is why human beings are urged and encouraged to turn from their sin. Because you're loved and you're cared about. Next week, we'll continue our study. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we pray that you prepared a world and a people and a person and a room and a sacrifice. And Heavenly Father, thank you that you've prepared us to hear a message. And hear about hope. Thank you, Lord, that you've told us the difference between right and wrong and good and evil. So that we would understand the difference between sin and separation. And that we would understand our need for a savior. And our need for forgiveness. And our need for hope. And so, Lord, again, we pray that as you prepare our hearts, as you reveal our circumstances, as you give us yet one more opportunity to admit our circumstance, confess our sin, and turn to the Savior that we would take full advantage of it. Lord, I pray that the voice that says you're bluffing, that you'll never find out, and that my sin doesn't matter. Lord, I pray that you would still that voice. In Jesus name. Amen. Let's